Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. I have with me Jeffy Haza and Simon Vozik Levinson, and we're going to talk about DMX, a great artist who died at the age of 50. And we're going to look back at his career and kind of just get into what made him important, what made him interesting, which was a lot. He was a fascinating, complicated, gifted, troubled artist. He had a lot of sides to him. It's pretty interesting to go back to the music, to go back to his life story, and just be remembered what a complex dude he was. Jeff, you wrote a great piece about DMX. Maybe you can kind of just sum up some of what you said there and some of how you see him in, in context. Yeah, I mean, I think, as you said, you know, he's obviously a really complex figure within the world of music and within hip-hop as well. And it's always funny in situations like this for me because I'm relatively young in comparison to most of the people who I think spoke out the most about him. You know, when DMX was really first coming out, I was like five or six years old. And even then, even still, you know, I have such vivid memories of those songs kind of raining everywhere I went. And as I got older and as I got into teenage years, adolescence, college years, you know, looking at someone like DMX and looking at his legacy has been so interesting for me, particularly as someone who's interested in the ways in which celebrity functions in our culture and in our society. And I think DMX is, for all the amazing music he made, for all the amazing, you know, movie and television appearances that he's done, and for just what a positive cultural figure he was overall, he's such a good example of the ways in which I think our celebrity culture can fail people despite their talents. Maybe expand on that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I think in my memory as a 28-year-old, DMX up until the past week or two was kind of a punchline, right, for going to jail a lot and for having a bunch of kids and growling in his music. And when you really look into his biography and you look into how raw of a person he was being in his music and you look at the way in which he was so able to contextualize and understand himself and his own experiences and then make it for public consumption. And for the end result of that to be SNL style jokes about someone having a bunch of kids and being in jail a bunch, it really points to how no matter how good of a artist you are, no matter how good you are with your art and the way you treat your, your cultural output, there's so little you can do about the way it's received until unfortunately after someone's gone. I think that's a, a really great point, Jeff. And I've been thinking about that too in the last few days, just sort of why was DMX sort of a punchline to so many people in, in the last decade or so of his life? I think part of it is what you're saying. Part of it, I think, is just that his music and his life story had such an intensity to them that people almost couldn't bear to look at it straight on and think about it. DMX is someone who wasn't afraid to confront the darkness in his music. He got incredibly real with it, and I think it was easier for people in some ways to make that into kind of a, a caricature than to think seriously about you know, the issues that he, he was talking about in, in his music. I saw him live at least once in his prime, and he was an unbelievably intense stage performer. And he also, he sort of like wasn't performing. You know, when he did that prayer that everyone talks about in his show, he wasn't performing the prayer he was really praying he would cry and stuff and it was a hundred percent real and there was just yeah i think simon that's a great point it, it was and there was something like weirdly sort of 90s about him in a way that transcends that isn't just about rap but just he was a, another like hyper intense gen x performer uh, it's interesting to just look at him that way it's like the shroud of 
of him being some kind of punchline has just fallen from everyone's eyes. And, and it, it now seems kind of, it seems pretty awful, especially the more you look at what his life was really like. I mean, let's put him in, in some historical context before we get into the details of, of his life and music. I mean, hip hop had lost a lot of figures in the 90s. And when he came around, he was the return to a gritter kind of thing in the face of Puffy and Mace and that kind of shiny suit rap is a cliche way to look at it. But I think there's some truth in that. Maybe you guys can talk about that, just where he was in the continuum of rap in the 90s and early 2000s. Yeah, I mean, I think a narrative that has really been pointed out a lot since DMX's passing has been, you know, the moment that his debut came out in 1998 was the shift from the gangster rap of the up to that point of the 90s into the shiny suit rap or, you know, the more sophisticated idea of rap. And I think there are a lot of sociopolitical things that go along with that, where it's like you have hip hop that has been a genre at that point for a few decades at that point. And I think the financial changes and the financial shifts as hip hop became more influential in the broader music industry made the shiny suit rap a declaration of something shifting in the culture. So I, I always look at kind of the the quick sort of divide between someone like DMX and someone like Puffy as a little bit tricky. Seems facile to you. Yeah, because it's not to say that anyone who was coming up in hip hop in the early 90s was any less gritty than DMX, even though I'm sure on a kind of more tangible level, they probably were. But I think what's really interesting about DMX holding on to that sort of authentic, if you want to call it, street perspective is that he very easily could have played the game of hip hop and talked about how much money he was making robbing people or how much money he was making hustling. But I think the emotional resonance is why his music was so gritty. It's why he came into the scene with the bravado that he did. I don't look at him as a as an answer to Mason Diddy walking around in suits as much as I see him as someone who refused to turn hip hop into anything but a real avenue for personal expression. That's a great point, Jeff. And I think you know, there's also, there's a reductive way that people sometimes present DMX as an alternative to, let's say, Puffy or Jay-Z. In fact, I think it's important for people to remember, like, he was making this, you know, gritty, hardcore street rap, but he was also making huge, huge pop hits. DMX is someone who had an incredible sense of what connected on the charts. He had songs that were everywhere on the radio, and I think it reduces his legacy to present him as just sort of an alternative to what was popular or what was poppy. He was actually doing both things at once in a really sophisticated and complex way. I think that's right. And I wanted to talk about him as a pop hit maker because one of the things you can trace his influence in, and, and by the way, I was going to mention, he couldn't have been an alternative to Jay-Z because Murder, Inc. existed, you know, which which actually had uh, DMX and Jay-Z and Ja Rule in it. But he... As far as singing his own hooks, and often great hooks, he obviously paved the way for a lot of the sound of rap hits to come. And, you know, to the extent that he later accused Ja Rule of ripping him off, Ja Rule kind of presented the sort of candied version of that. And, you know, I think he probably did have a, a point about Ja Rule ripping him off. I don't know what you guys think. There's definitely a, a clear way that you can say that DMX did it first, for sure compared to Ja Rule. I think it's true. You listen back to those early DMX hits and you hear not just someone who's an incredible rapper, but someone who was a really convincing singer. He had an incredible kind of soulful, deep voice that really added a lot to his, his hits. His mother, he wrote in his autobiography, apparently could really sing. 
She was compared to Shaka Khan by her friends, I don't know. But he did have that musical lineage, I guess, which is interesting. But then, of course, if you trace his sound to Ja Rule, you can then trace it to 50 Cent. So it's like this whole kind of, who kind of roughed up that thing again. But let's talk maybe about his life. I think a lot of it is on the records. There's more detail in his autobiography and in various documentaries. I mean, it was rough. What stands out to you, and Jeff, you wrote a little bit about this, about his childhood, which is is really striking, and it can't be explained without looking at sort of like the institutionalized uh, sort of segregation and, and racism of, of Yonkers, as you point out at the beginning of your piece. Yeah, I think that was something that stood out to me just specifically because as I, you know, I was familiar with his autobiography up to this point, and I think right when he passed, I revisited it and then looking through it i'm looking at the dates of oh i was born in 1970 my mom moved to from new haven to yonkers in 1971 and a huge light bulb just went off in my head about the, that major court case in yonkers about segregation to the point where there was an hbo miniseries about it and all these things and when you read that autobiography you, the sense of geography and how big of a role the geography plays from one housing complex to the next housing complex to his grandmother's house for a second going into the city with his father you know a few times it's like all of these all of these touchstones are so tied to location and it's such a harsh example of all of the ways in which through no fault of his own DMX Earl Simmons experienced injustice after injustice it's a decade before the United States does anything about it, which it still took years after the court case for anything to actually happen in Yonkers. But a decade before that, he's born into the situation where there's racialized poverty. The schools are racially segregated. And, you know, another thing you read about in his autobiography is that he was a really gifted student. Like a, a teacher would come in and give spelling tests every week and the reward was a sandwich. And he was so hungry that he would win the spelling test every week just for the, you know, the sandwich from whatever place it was from. And when you look at his life and you really dig into his history, you know, one wants to be careful not to explain away any bad decisions that a person makes. But I think it is really, really interesting and harrowing the fact that so many things in DMX's early life had nothing to do with him, had nothing to do with decisions he made, had nothing to do with him as a person being angry and fighting a bunch of people or anything like that. It all had to do with factors that were completely out of his control as a child. And for someone who had just endured that much unfairness and to still emerge the way that he did and to still be as successful as he was, I think is, is such a powerful thing. And it's a really amazing legacy to really leave behind and look at. Yeah, I mean, I had a similar thought, which is that you look at the fact that there were times when he was literally sleeping on the floor um, of his apartment as a kid because someone else had his bedroom and there were like mice and roaches on the floor and stuff and had a mother who never showed him love and came from that, no support whatsoever, to being one of the biggest artists in the world and a movie star and everything else. I mean, first of all, it's an absolutely triumphant story and it's incredible and an incredible achievement. Uh, And second of all, you can understand profoundly why he struggled with success, struggled with fame, and add on top of that the fact that he was, you know, introduced to crack as a young teenager by someone he trusted, and then, you know, basically unleashed this uh, this demon for him. What's surprising isn't that he had a rough time in his life, but what's surprising is the success he had. That should supersede his troubles in the way we look at him, I guess. I don't know. 
What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the behind the scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. Simon, you did an interview with a member of the Rough Riders. Um, we're going to play some of that. Tell us a little bit about that conversation. Yeah, so the night that DMX died, late that night, I got a phone call from Dragon, who, if you were listening to the records that DMX was making with Rough Riders in the late 90s, Dragon was such a big part of that. He was this young rapper from the Bronx who DMX mentored, who was kind of a protege figure, uh, recorded some incredible classic songs uh, together with DMX, and we had a really honest, emotional conversation about the generosity and leadership and love that DMX showed for him as a young artist, and it was really moving to hear about that. And maybe just set up the Rough Riders a little bit, remind us the part they played. Sure. So when DMX was at the height of his early fame in the late 90s, he was the star of a crew of artists known as the Rough Riders, DMX was at the top. You had Eve, an incredible rapper from Philadelphia. You had Swizz Beats, this amazing young producer. You had a variety of other artists. You had The Locks, who were an incredible trio of rappers. And you also had Dragon, who was the youngest artist in Rough Riders. He was kind of the young gun of Rough Riders. Uh, recorded some classic hits, some incredible verses that anyone who was listening to New York rap in the 90s you know, knew instantly. So let's hear Simon and Dragon. It's two words to describe DMX, you know what I'm saying? You know, like when I met him and, and how he do his music. It's energy and passion. Uh-huh. You know what I'm saying? Like those are the two. I mean, even if you find other words that can go with that and other stuff like that, but you cannot leave out those two. Those was his mandatory that is dmx that is why the world loved them that's why we love them because of those two words you know what i'm saying his energy and his passion was something different it was it was something from out of this world right. you know what i'm saying right I, absolutely and i mean, would you say like as you got to know him more and, and as you joined rough riders was it a connection based sort of mostly on music did it become a deeper like a friendship like on a personal level would you say yeah like my man you know it took like within a couple days for us to just become brothers you know what i'm saying so that's why we was i mean you know i mean you know and i loved every artist you know what i'm saying but you know me and dmx was just always the tightest because I mean, you know, we just always just really looked at each other like brothers, you know what I'm saying, for real. And it's crazy, too, because at the time, I, I actually looked like this little brother. You first met him in 97, then by 98, you know, that was obviously like a huge year for X. He was releasing his first album, he was going multi-platinum making hits. Do you remember, what do you remember about sort of that era, what it was like to be around him then? It was great, you know what I mean, because he actually gave me a chance to let the world hear me before I was even signed to Rough Riders, you know what I'm saying, which was actually the song on his first album called This Is For My Dog. Like, I actually did that in 1997, I was 17. So, you know what I mean, that was like the actual second song I ever even recorded, like, in my life. I've never really even been in the studio, like, you know, like that. Like, I was only in the studio one time before that. Mm-hmm. And I recorded one song, I think, when I was like 13. And then I got with him, and then I had to go in there and do that verse right there right. with all these big MCs that's already been in the game. You know what I'm saying? So I was nervous. 
but uh, like a lot of people liked my verse on there, and I was just really just glad that I held my weight on it. You know what I'm trying to say? Word, I mean. Right, right. And what what was DMX like in terms of like I heard people talking about just he had like a kindness to him and a generousness to his spirit. Is that sort of something that you got a sense of in those days? Yeah, like that's some I got a sense of pretty much every day. Like that was DMX. X was just a genuine person. You feel what I'm trying to say? Like he like he had love for me instantly. You know what I'm saying? It was just natural for him. It didn't even take long, you feel what I'm trying to say? Like when he come across people and if he rock with you, he rock with you. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. But but if he don't, he don't. But uh, yeah. I mean, he's always he always was genuine about it. You find what I'm trying to say? Even when he didn't, he still was genuine. You find what I'm trying to say? You be like, yo, ex, what's up? And then he's the type that'll probably tell you, dog, listen, and I don't really fuck with you. You know what I'm saying? Like he's just that type. So he always was genuine and real kind-hearted too. You find what I'm trying to say? Like ex was like a given type of person too. You know what I mean? You know, he was more on the give give you find trying to say and he didn't really care about you uh i mean giving it back you know what i mean because he was more into the lord you find trying to say he felt as though his blessings came from the lord you know what i'm saying so he didn't really care about what you can give to him you know what i mean so that's what made him different right 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 i mean you made some classic songs with him in those days like you know i don't know like on on the rough riders anthem remix or like ride or die like what was it like collaborating with him being in the studio with him in that era at that point being in the studio with dmx was just it was it was just like you know what i mean you know like a real great experience it was it was energetic you find trying to say it was uh your pen had to be moving and you had to be aggressive with it and you really got to be about your shit you know what i'm saying uh-huh. like there was no plan no games and nothing like that like x was pretty much like how Tupac was with his artists, and that's how he was with me. X had with me, so he never really like played with me. So, 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 like you find trying to say, he was like real strict. Like, uh-huh. all right, drag up. This is what we doing. We're gonna rap this way on this joint. You find trying. I didn't really have too much say. So uh-huh. him, he had the whole orchestration of what he wanted to do. You know what I'm saying? So I learned a lot. I learned a lot from watching him do that. He orchestrated everything. From no love for me, everything. He said, drag it, we're gonna rap like this. Whenever I got my live all night. Uh-huh. You know what I'm saying? Like and he made me rap the same thing. Uh-huh. You saw what I'm trying to say? Uh-huh. You fucking with me? Ain't keeping your hell, bro. Like I had to do that same he told me exactly like I need you to rap this way or you can't get on the song. It's straight like that, you know what I'm saying? So it was structure and it was love and it was passion and it was great energy, you know what I'm saying? Right, right, I, I love that. And was it, I mean, just being around someone like that, was it kind of, you know, did it give you kind of motivation and inspiration to kind of go harder in your own music and find your voice that way? Yep, yep, yep. Yeah. Do you remember, um, what about, like, the shows, like, those early, you know, the Rough Riders shows and the tours? What was it like to kind of, like, to share a stage with BMX? What was that like? Um, the first time I was real nervous because I didn't really know how to perform and stuff like that. But after a while, it's like I had to learn. Like, I mean, you know, performing with X was a little different than with than performing with other artists because some nights he didn't want you to perform with him. You know what I'm trying to say? Like, some nights he might just be like, Listen, I'm doing this shit by myself. But that's cool. But the scary part was that he never told you. You found out right when your part was supposed to come up, then he'd just keep rapping his part. You know what I'm trying to say? So that's letting you know he's doing his own show. <laughs> but then... When he wants you to perform, right when your party come up, he just look at you. And then you just got to be ready to have your verse. So I learned that maybe like the fourth time of performing, and I was sharp 
and ready to spit my verse just in case he was ready for me to spit my verse on it. You feel what I'm trying to say? Like songs like Stop Drop, you know what I'm saying? You know, sometimes he'll do the joint with, with, with all of us and then sometimes he'll do it by itself. But the trick was, he's only going to let you know on stage while that song is playing. And then you got to just be ready. You know what I'm saying? And that was that. Right. And you know, for you, I mean, you were obviously you were you were young, you were at the beginning of your career. What was it like to kind of, you know, travel around the country or around the world on tour? Like what was that experience like, you know, for you? Um, it was great. Mm-hmm. Like, you know what I'm saying? You know, it was great being able to be on a hard knock life tour. Uh-huh. It was great to be on the Survivor of the Illness tour with the you know what I'm saying, even though at that time I was just his hype man. You feel what I'm trying to say? Right. So and then um uh, and then I kind of graduated, though I was working on my album at the time, so I was an artist, but I was just as hype man, you know what I'm trying to say? Right, right. And um, a few years later, I did the, the Hard Knock Life tour, and then I was able to actually come out and perform with DMX like two, three times, uh-huh. you know what I'm saying? At our night, because we had so many songs together. <laughs> and then I just felt great when one of my songs that I did with Cash Money actually led to a rough ride of cash money tour right right that's cool yeah that must have been awesome i mean the the music that you made like you know on down bottom that hearing you and juvenile together was just such a an incredible combination of sounds i remember that must have been a cool yeah a cool thing to to perform yeah just to back up for one second because i the first thing you were saying about how at first you were just you know his hype man like what was that what's it like to be dmx's hype man at that era like the what's the energy like um far as being his hype man like and i really enjoyed it because it gave me uh stage time to learn how to fill the crowd to see how to perform you know what i'm saying uh i mean you know like it's different when you perform in party records then it's like you know what i mean all you gotta do is dance and, and go at the party but rough riders we put our street music so to get the crowd hype off of some street shit is a little it takes a little bit more way more energy than trying to get the crowd hype off of a party joint. You feel what I'm trying to say? Party right, joints, right. it's kind of easy to get the club hype. You want the B, come on, they're already hype without you doing nothing. But we had a lot of street joints where we really was spitting it and talking to the streets. Right. You feel what I'm trying to say? So, so, you know, we really had to show that type of energy. So me being his hype man was just, it was a learning experience. It actually taught me how to perform. Right. how to feel the crowd, what it's going to be like when I'm actually up there. Right. You know what I mean? So, so I actually enjoyed it. You know what I'm saying? Jeff, how do you think DMX is being remembered now in the, the past you know, few days? And then how was his legacy seen before that? I think he's always been a very interesting figure because even before this and before the pandemic, frankly, in 2019, he was very much poised for a, a sort of comeback and not to yeah. say comeback as though he had ever truly fallen off or anything, but I think there was a genuine sense that, Oh yeah, DMX was amazing and deserves credit and deserves to be kind of seen as this elder statesman in hip hop. And, you know, I think as we've talked about a lot of the challenges in his life, I think prevented him from being able to more or less capitalize on what he did achieve, you know, five number one records off the bat and redefining so many things in hip hop, Rough Riders being this cultural touchstone on its own. And I think what we've seen in the past, you know, week or so since he's passed has been a reflection of how much energy I think there was around a DMX comeback, around a, you know, reappraisal of of DMX and Rough Riders and how important that moment was. And 
for all of his legal troubles, for all of his familial troubles, we've also seen in the past decade or so, so many figures in across music, across hip hop, sort of taken down for moral failings, for lack of a better term. And I think mm. the fact that through all of everything that went wrong with DMX, no one is coming out today saying, oh, he did this to me, or this happened, or he messed up in this way. You know, it's it's all of the people he actually interacted with and engaged with were treated with nothing but respect. And I think that is, that's such a huge part of why I think his legacy now is, you know, I think he's seen much in a much more positive and in a much more nuanced light than he perhaps would have been in, in a lot of different situations. Let's talk about his debut album from 1998. There was just a, a run of albums that just made him the absolute center of rap for a while, certainly in New York, but everywhere. That album, It's Dark and Hell is Hot, is one of the all-time great hip-hop debuts. There's such a focused intensity to his performances on that album. The songs are catchy, they're concise, they have depth to them. The performances have so much raw charisma that as soon as you heard any of those songs, you knew this is a superstar, this isn't a minor talent, this is someone who's the center of the conversation. And that was borne out by how incredibly popular that album was. As you sort of said, there was a period of time there for at least a large part of 1998 where DMX was the king of New York rap. He was huge. The songs were everywhere. You heard them you know, booming out of cars, walking down the block. You heard them anytime you turned on the radio. And he achieved something huge with that album. And it's amazing to realize that that was only his first huge multi-platinum album of that year. And we can, we can move on to talking about that later, but there's something amazing about that. Right. There was another one later that same year. I mean, it's also important just to jump back to understand whenever you have a, a first album that well formed, it, it's often because the artist has actually been around for a really long time and you're just hearing, you're just hearing them now. And that was really the case for DMX. He was for years a battle rapper and a street rapper and just like on the fringes of the music industry not really breaking through. And I think that's the assurance that you hear is partly from that. And it's like, you know, he was around long enough that it, the style was almost unrecognizable. I don't know if you, if you two have uh, gone back to the pre-fame music recently. I mean, yeah, it's almost unrecognizable to the point that when you do kind of connect him in 1994 when he's putting out music and his 1998 releases, it makes it even more astonishing because you're like, oh, that little thread carries through. But yes, Simon, as you said, there was another album that same year in 1998. So let's go to that one. Right. So only a few months after his first huge multi-platinum smash debut album, DMX made another huge multi-platinum smash second album, Flesh of My Flesh, Blood of My Blood. Another great album title, by the way, something that he was really great at. Another album that was just stacked with huge songs. Uh, on, on that album, he goes, I think, even deeper than on the debut. He has the song Slippin', which is one of his deepest and most profound songs that kind of goes against the image that he sometimes had of just being like an aggressive battle rapper. There was real, real candor and real depth to that. Both of those albums are really strong bodies of work that the fact that he was able to make them within one calendar year says something to that kind of the depth of his ability that he had there. Yeah, I mean, I think it stands today as I think one of the most enduring examples of what hip-hop can do, what hip-hop mm. can mean for people, not just listeners, but for the artists making it. 
you know, it's hard for me to think or come up with another rap song from this decade, from the 90s, from the early 2000s, from the history of hip hop that is as emotionally raw and vulnerable and honest as that song is. I think it's so hard to see people be honest about their flaws and their shortcomings and to go not only into that realm of yourself, but then to make it into music and to make it into something that, I mean, the, the chorus is catchy, you know, I'm slipping, I'm falling. I can't like, it's musical first. And then it, it hits on such a spiritual level that I think, I think that song alone is, is a major, major achievement in his catalog. Yeah. I think it's also worth noting just the sort of literary achievement of the song, as far as the compression of basically telling his whole life story in just a few bars, you know, it's pretty impressive. And for some reason, I, I feel like he maybe is underrated as a lyricist, you know, as just like a craftsman of lyrics. It is not easy to get all that into one song and to make it so incredibly moving. So his, his third album, which was a whole year later, and then there was X, and Party Up, up in here, was obviously like his biggest song. You're talking about pop hits that was a huge pop hit, and yet a great rap song. And then there was X is DMX at his pop star peak. And, you know, to remember, this is an era, the Y2K era, when pop was the biggest genre. It was huge. And DMX held his own with Christina Aguilera, Britney Spears, and the Backstreet Boys with the hits that he was making. Uh, Party Up is an incredibly catchy song. It crossed all boundaries. People were playing it at spring break parties. You know, this was a, a huge, huge pop hit. And he did all of that without sacrificing that kind of intensity and realness that he had brought to his first two albums. And I, I think that's a really impressive feat. Does that song uh, hold up for you, Jeff? Oh, yeah. And I think <laughs> one, of, one of the things that was really, I mean, a moment of, of humor in all of this as it was happening was a meme that I saw on Twitter about, you know, DMX really had like school teachers quoting that song. Where it was like, you know, if the teacher was mad at you, that was the kind of thing that they would pull out as a joke to be like, oh, yeah, I get what you guys are listening to as well. Like, y'all are going to make me lose my mind up in, you know, it's like just just the amount of like cultural impact that that had is, is so staggering. There's a part at the beginning of his autobiography where he talked about a dream he had where people were saying, DMX, we love you. And then they pull out guns and they're going to shoot him. And it just, it makes me think, I mean, he could not cope psychologically with his success. He talks about this actually in his, uh, in his, in his VH1 Behind the Music, which he did. And he did a really great sort of latter-day interview for it, that he, he just couldn't process the fact that how far he had come. And I, I guess as they went into the 2000s, that's where the demons started taking hold of him. And he, he also... The other factor was, you know, he had money. So he had money for drugs once that started to take hold again. And it was a, it was a dangerous combination. On his next album, I think, is, is where the song, uh, I think that, yeah, Who We Be is on that. And it's one of my favorite DMX moments is at the end of that song where he starts ad-libbing. It's like the very end. And then he starts singing along to the riff and the beat exactly like Beavis and Butthead. That's from the heart. That album is The Great Depression, and Huey B was a pretty big hit. And then there was I Miss You uh, was another single. It was dedicated to his grandmother, who 
was the one person in his childhood who showed him love. When he describes that, there's another moment in an interview when he, when he says, uh, it's really intense to see him say it. He goes, no matter how hard you're trying to be, no matter who you are, uh, you always want to be someone's baby, and I was her baby. And I was like, wow, that's really, you know. Grandma, I really miss you, and it ain't been the same. I drop a tear when I hear your name. Mariella Holloway, why you gotta be so far away? Anything from that period, the uh, sort of 2001 period, stand out to you guys? The Great Depression for me was, I think, the first project of his that I was aware of in real time. I think yeah. as his first two albums came out, I was definitely much too young to be aware of really what was going on. But by this point, I was later in elementary school and um, listening to music and actually joked with a friend of mine who's around my age. And, and we were talking about, you know, this was one of the first like bootlegs that we remember <laughs> going out and finding because who we be had such a, that beat was so, it was almost like something you'd hear in a video game. And I think it was really attractive to, you know, young music listeners but I actually revisited that record a couple of days ago, just thinking about all of this. And it's really interesting how a lot of that sociopolitical context comes through in the Great Depression and how, you know, even on a song like Who We Be, it's really about where he's from. Like it's about Yonkers. It's about people who grew up the way that he grew up. Mm. And there's even songs about his relationships with women and there's songs about, you know, and then he's also got a prayer at, towards the end, I think. The Great Depression is a really interesting record in his catalog to me specifically because of how it appears that he's beginning to grapple with some of what you're describing of, I came from such a, you know, horrendous situation and now I'm extremely famous and I'm trying to contextualize this for these millions of people who are now suddenly paying attention to me. There's also, I guess it wasn't technically on the album, but it was at that, I think it was like a bonus track, but X Gun Give It To You is like, that's a huge song too, and also had its Deadpool moment. X Gun Give It To You, fuck way for you to get it on your own, X Gun Deliver To You, knock knock, open up the door, it's real. Around this time, I think trouble was starting to arise, and it was starting to slow down a little bit commercially right after that, and there were some legal issues the trouble was starting to outweigh his success for him. And that's around kind of where it started, I think. Right. I, I think that's true. I mean, this is the era in which the negative headlines were multiplying and the hits were beginning to dwindle. But I will say that if you go back and revisit his catalog from that time, as we've been saying, DMX was still making really vital music at that time. And I think this is the time, the era probably more than any other, when people have been you know, this week have been thinking about wishing that, that maybe they had gone back and, and shown a little more empathy and understanding to him. It's also interesting. I mean, he was not happy with Def Jam. There's a clip of him realizing that they, you know, <laughs> they had charged him back with everything. And so there, were, there was all the kind of usual record label stuff. But Jeff, as far as the post Great Depression stuff, what stands out in your mind? What should people go back and listen to? Post Great Depression. Honestly, Undisputed is one that I was listening to recently because that was, I, I think he's had a few releases since then. Undisputed was uh, some 2011 or 2012. 2012, and I've yeah. done a few things since then. But I, I was looking at that as kind of like the last thing he sort of left us with. And I actually really appreciate that record because especially, you know, it's a decade removed from the Great Depression and the continuity and the consistency of DMX through to the end, you know, I think this was someone who really cared a lot about musicality and he cared a lot about albums as a whole. And 
he really had a gift at just creating an entire story. You know, people joke now about the streaming era and the ways in which no one listens to albums anymore and things like that. But, you know, DMX was a rapper who could really make you listen to an album all the way through. And I think that is that's something that is really, really special that you don't we just don't even have anymore. <laughs> and that is our show for today. And we'll be back next week here on Sirius XM's volume channel 106. In the meantime, we are a podcast. Download us as a podcast. Subscribe to us as a podcast. Wherever you get your podcasts, maybe leave this nice review on iTunes if you can. It's always appreciated. But as always, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was the three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.